It's not always possible for us to sing the words of the text we're considering, but that's what you've just done. You have sung a text taken pretty directly from Psalm 73. We're considering this psalm. I began with it last Sunday and would like to look at it a second time today. One of the great psalms, not authored by David, but by Asaph, another man of God who wrote a number of psalms. And we looked last time at this man struggling with his faith and considered we were moving him until he was just about through with his struggle. I'm going to just back up a little bit and begin in verse 13 of Psalm 73, where he's just beginning to see the error of his ways and awaken to greater truth and understanding, which he declares boldly near the end of the psalm. So let's listen as I read from Psalm 73, beginning at verse 13 this morning. The psalmist writes, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. But if I said I would speak this way, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes... So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's holy word. And it creates for us the question this morning to ask, what in the world do you desire and prize above everything else. If your heart's deepest, most secret ambition was to be fulfilled for you today, what would it be? Would it be some state of permanent health in which you never knew pain or the aches or the disabilities of old age? Would it be a joyful marriage and children who in their behavior, in their future lives, fulfilled every single hope that you might have for them? Would it be financial security to last you for a lifetime? 
all those things, and maybe all of them put together, are common hopes and dreams and desires of human beings. But doesn't the call of Jesus Christ to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you, overrule for you every secondary desire that you might have in this life? Last time we saw this psalmist Asaph, a man of God we don't know a lot about except that he was a pious man, a temple choir master leading in the worship of Solomon's temple, a mature believer apparently, and yet someone who very frankly confessed to us in the opening of this psalm that he had nearly lost his entire faith in the Lord because of his deep-seated envy. It just disturbed him to look around and see godless people prospering, healthy, arrogant, literally speaking out against heaven and no consequences seeming to come to them, popular, people following in their sway, and we picked up today with him still feeling sorry for himself, saying, surely in vain have I been godly. When you can be godless and have all that these people seem to have, it seemed to Asaph as if his efforts at living for the Lord were futile. But now today we look at the second half of this psalm where the man of faith fairly abruptly, in fact, comes to himself. He, he awakens as if from his dream or delusion of self-pity. And he was lifted by the Spirit of God with insight that allowed him to understand the pitiful end of the people that he was envying and then to go on to the very heights of a great faith when he cries out, in a trust in the Lord that is climactic and absolutely wonderful. In verses 25 and 26, he plants a rock, one on which we can stand and not be moved if our house burned down or our pension fund melted away or our bodies became permanently disabled. Here we're going to find a stand of faith in eternal things that is unlike almost any other in the Old Testament. The first matter that comes to light for us here today is to see the need for repentance for wrong thinking. I think we don't always understand how we can develop a train of thought on a subject and go on living in it and carrying it out and even building on it day after day when that thinking is actually sinful and requires us to come to the Lord and say, Lord, my mind is, is in a mess. I need to turn around and start again. Whenever I think of that, I think of the first computer I ever bought in 1988 in Maryland. I bought it along with a friend who also got one at a shop where the man built his own. It wasn't a Dell or, or one of these, you know, Compaq or something like that. It was a locally made computer in a man's shop. By the way, those of you who are computer nuts, uh, this was a remarkable computer because in 1988 it had two megabytes of RAM instead of one. Those of you that use a computer will understand how out of date that is. But we thought it was a great thing. Well, we bought this computer. I took mine home, and it didn't seem to work correctly, and I had to take it back. 
And the gentleman who built it was, you know, one of these guys who sort of lives in the technical world, and he set it up on his counter and started, you know, typing in commands, and the computer wasn't responding, and he was muttering to it. And and I realized he felt sort of like a fatherly interest in this computer because he had built it, and he was talking to it. And then he, he turned to me and he said, this boy needs to get his mind right. And indeed, it did need some new parts to get its mind right. Well, we don't need new computer parts, but we can easily become victims of wrong thinking. There's a constant danger for every born-again Christian to slide into just subconsciously. You don't have to even make an effort. The world will overwhelm you enough with its advertising and its all the input that you get. You know the saying in in computers that all of us learned a long time ago, garbage in, garbage out. What you put in the computer determines what comes out of it. It's the same with your mind. And if your mind simply absorbs what the world is teaching it, you're going to slide into thinking that is based entirely on materialism and power and status and style and all these kinds of things, constantly skewed values where you will need the renewing of your mind to be fine-tuned again to the thoughts and principles of God. And that takes continual exposure to Scripture. It's the only cure so that the Holy Spirit of God can drench your mind with the true truth, how things really are. The Scripture says God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we need to be constantly reoriented in our whole understanding. Sometimes that means being ready to repent of a course of thinking that's completely wrong. Well, last time we we came up to the point where Asaph was just beginning to have this dawn upon him. And verse 17 tells us that the crucial experience for him was when he came into worship. This whole thing was so oppressive for him until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood the fate of the wicked. Somehow he hadn't even thought about the fact that these people who he was envying were going to come to an end of their road. And then he began to consider how catastrophic that end was. But we note again, as last time, the fact that it was in corporate worship that the Lord spoke to him and gave him this wake-up call and began to turn his thinking from a natural bent to a spiritual bent. And the Lord himself became the center of his awareness, I would think, as he heard the Word of God in the place of worship. It may be a very simplistic conclusion, but any anyone who counsels people or deals with people in the church can can tell you this is a broad and and generally true observation, that those who become most seriously mired in personal quandaries, whose minds are the most confused and they don't seem to know which way to turn and they're making one bad decision after another, often at least are people who are not very regular in the corporate worship of God. Now, I'm not ready to tell you that every Sunday church attendance is going to mean your mind is going to be completely straight. But you're certainly putting yourself in a place of great advantage. We see so often the people who will show up for counseling and, and just be confused and turned around. And, 
and they haven't given themselves the opportunity to be stabilized by regular hearing the Word of God and singing praise and being part of corporate prayer. In a sense, they're like people who are spiritual anemics. They're easily infected by every germ of worldly thinking, and they're easily knocked off course to not understand things. Deliberate corporate worship puts the Lord at the center of your concerns. And when he remains there, you will see his truth more easily day by day. Notice Asaph says here that in the act of coming before God, in the act of worship, I understood. He doesn't say worship made me feel better. He says I understood. Worship introduced me to the truth. And I understood that I was living in a delusion when I was focused only on the possessions that people had and the offices that they held and the fame that they had acquired. I look at those things now with the gaze of faith and I see those are not true things at all. And the gaze of faith let him see things that are invisible as the book of Hebrews calls them. (coughs) Remember how he earlier said, my feet had almost slipped? He was looking back, of course, as he wrote this psalm. He was already through the crisis when he wrote the psalm. And he said, I'd almost slipped. I almost slid down a a whole slope to ruin. But in 18, he says, oh, I realized who is actually on the slippery slope, and it wasn't myself. It was those people I envied, those whose, whose faces got on the cover of Time magazine and Vogue and Fortune and were featured in all of the big publications, those who were the movers and the shakers and the beautiful people in this world. I looked at the aspect of their death if they do not know God, and I realized they were going to have a fall that would be catastrophic and irreparable. The bubble that they were seeming to live in right now was going to burst and leave them absolutely desolate. And it's suddenly as if the thin curtain between this life and the life to come is, is drawn back and Asaph can see people at the judgment throne of God when being on Time magazine isn't going to matter, when being the latest supermodel isn't going to matter, when being among the world's top ten billionaires isn't going to count for anything. And Asaph says, oh, the flimsy, temporary security that these arrogant boasters have. They strut around now, but then in the end they will have nothing. And I will have a rock-solid position in my God. I've told you this in the past, but I say it again and again. I get tired of people saying to me or hearing out in the society, what will faith in Christ do for me out in the real world? That expression always bothers me a great deal. Because I want to ask the person, what do you think the real world actually is? Do you think it's the world of Wall Street? Do you think it's the world of of the New York Times, the world of of the Lancaster newspaper and the latest crime report or traffic accident or tax rise in our community? Do you think it's the world of the Iraq war? Do you think it's a world based on who's in office in politics or Washington? You must actually be clueless if you think that. 
You don't understand. What Asaph is telling us is the real world is the world you see in the lens of eternity. It is Scripture that reveals to us a world that is going to endure not for a month or a year or 20 years or 85 years. The Scripture is concerned with how things end. You remember David writing in Psalm 37? Verse 35, he says, There I saw a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. Much as Asaph, he said, look at that. Look at that man. But then he continued and said, but he soon passed away and was no more. Although I looked for him, he could not be found. You see, the worldly idea of reality thinks in terms of how things begin and how they appear right now. God's idea of reality is concerned with conclusions. How will it end? Many adults here spent a large part of our lives under the shadow of the Cold War, as it was called, a time in our history when the Soviet Union following World War II was a major superpower alongside the United States of America. Many of us can recall going to school and and having drilled into us the, the sort of looming threat out there that Someday Nikita Khrushchev was going to get mad enough at us that he was going to hurl an atomic bomb. And I remember having to have these drills, these air raid drills where we would get under our desks. Never could figure that out. You know, they told me what an atomic bomb did, and I said, what good is a desk? It just didn't make sense. But anyway, we got under the desks, and, you know, you sat there for the period of quiet, and you thought about Would somebody really send an atomic bomb and kill us? And we lived in fear. We lived in a threat of that looming out there and the Iron Curtain and the dominating control of communism. And then, amazing, in about 1990, in a very short period of time, the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union went through a huge negative transformation and the communist threat that seemed like it would menace us forever was was basically gone. And hardly any of us, and even the, the greatest politicians, didn't fully see it coming. I remember when Ronald Reagan stood there in Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall. I thought, Mr. President, you know, they're, they're not going to do that. It doesn't matter how you ask them. They're not going to do it. Well, it was only a little while after that the wall came down out of its own weight. And that great threat was gone. And that my point is that almost none of us saw it coming. We thought communism, why, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be the threat. And now it's basically gone. Yes, there are new threats, but that one is not the threat any longer. Well, Asaph, under conviction of the Holy Spirit, confesses to the Lord his misguided, worldly, materialistic, this hour, momentary-centered thinking. He says, Lord, I have acted. Look at what he says. I spoke like a brute beast. I was like a dog barking at some noise in the night, and I didn't even know what I was barking at. I was like a a donkey braying away. Lord, I, I wasn't thinking. I didn't know what I was saying. Forgive me for my unscriptural thinking and envy and covetousness. And so he comes to see repentance 
or unbiblical thinking. But now we reach the pinnacle of this Psalm 73, and it is a great pinnacle indeed. As the man has begun to confess from verse 23 to the end, this psalm is one that that soars upwards on wings of eagles as Asaph now begins to rejoice in eternal facts. If you read the King James Version of verse 23, one advantage of reading that would be the use of a word that doesn't survive in the modern translations. When it comes, he doesn't say yet or but. It says, nevertheless. That's one of my favorite words, by the way. A word that says, I see what's going on around me. I see all these appearances, these mirages, the state of people as they are, and I envy them. Nevertheless, I determine to direct my gaze now to the true and lasting facts. And this is the acid test of Christian faith. Whether we can gaze realistically on world circumstances that are ever-changing, fashions, riches, power, economic ups and downs, political changes, presidential changes, all the things that we go through in our lives. And we can say, I see these appearances. I see what they are. Nevertheless, I will determine to look upon God as the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The things I see by faith, not the things I see in a moment. In verses 23 and 24, Asaph outlines a sure personal relationship that he had with his God and Savior. He says, nevertheless, or yet, I am continually with you. Despite all this, despite all the appearances, I am yours, O God. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. If I was preaching on just those two verses, I'd use an outline. You know I don't usually use rhyming word outlines, but I would use this outline of three rhyming or three words starting with the same letter. The psalmist in these verses knew that he was grasped by God's sovereign grace. And so he could live today guided by God's great wisdom. And he would be glorified in God's throne presence forever. Grasped, guided, glorified. He says, these things are certain. These are the sure things on which I stand. When he speaks about God grasping him there, holding him, it makes me think of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. When Jesus spoke of his church, the people for whom he died, and he said, my sheep will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And my Father's hand, there was a, a sense of a two-handed grip, Jesus said. My, I hold them. My Father holds them. We won't let them go. And Asaph grasped this in the Old Testament. And he was amazed at the thought of it. He thought to himself, Father, I've been so foolish. I've been so stupid. I've been like an animal, not even using the mind that you gave me but you're still with me. You're still holding me. I was spewing nonsense out of my mouth, but I still belong to you. Surely I don't deserve this. And finally comes the great statement that is so tremendous, verses 25 and 26, that I wish it could be somehow preceded by a 
drum roll and a trumpet blast. When this man of faith says these great things, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing, nothing, nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I would urge you to memorize those two verses. There's enough biblical theology there. If those were the two verses you had on a desert island and on one scrap of a page of the Bible, you would have enough faith to hold on to the eternal realities. Now, maybe somebody says, well, this is a psalm. This is Old Testament. Jesus Christ isn't mentioned here. Where is his cross? Where is his resurrection? Those are still centuries away. How can this be such a glorious and complete trust if it lacks the message of the New Testament gospel? My answer is, here is a man who anticipates in every sense the coming of Christ, the final way in which God would fulfill and complete this grasp that he will have on his people. But Asaph, just in seeing the grace of God acting for him, knew that was enough, not even knowing yet the name of God's Savior, He knew that his God was working for him. And he knew that the treasures and the toys of this world were like a broken cistern without any water in it. But his God was an eternal spring of refreshment. And so Asaph says, I will trust in God and God alone. Before I wanted the things that other people had. I wanted the stuff. I wanted the honors. I wanted the fame. Now I want God himself. And what is that if it is not what Jesus called loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? Have you who possess the wonderful promise of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ experienced what Asaph did? Have you seen the foolishness of envying the things that godless people seem to have? Are you able to confess my flesh and my heart will fail? If you don't know that, let me editorialize. They absolutely will. It's not just that they may fail. They will fail. There aren't very many people here who are going to celebrate a 100th birthday. Many of you live right now with disabilities or disease And you perhaps even glimpse how, what it is that will take this flesh of yours and take it away from you. Maybe you're too young to think about it, but there isn't anything that you own. There isn't anything that belongs to you that is your permanent possession in terms of materialism. The honors you earned at university, they're good to have. They may help you a little bit in this world, but they'll fade Two generations from now, nobody will know what they were. All your precious stuff that you've accumulated is going to end up at some auction sale or yard sale or in your children's basement. But if you're a child of God, trusting in the name and the work of Jesus Christ who died on your behalf, you are guaranteed that beyond this flesh, beyond this body, 
you will meet your God face to face. And that is going to be your portion forever. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of the things that God is preparing for those who love him. The gospel guarantees these things. You know, it doesn't just say maybe you'll have this. It says, it's yours. You will lead me to glory. Worldly people don't understand this. They come to a Christian's funeral and they say, oh, here are these Christians, you know, giving out their vague hopes of what might happen after death. No, sir. No, sir. We are telling what will happen to the child of God whose God will lead them to glory. Heaven is our eternal home. It shouldn't seem unreal to us when, in fact, today we are inhabiting the world of shadows and illusions and lies. That's what this world is. The one to come is reality. So I close with some words from theologian David Wells who wrote this in one of his fine books. Wells said, what is at stake here is whether or not we see the greatness of God And whether that greatness he has in himself enters the fibers of our being. He said the Psalms speak of such things as longing for God or fainting for God or or being enraptured with the beauty of God or thirsting for God. How out of place this sounds in many churches today where they have a modern diminished God who lacks the power to summon up any such longing or hope or pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if God seems small, it's our understanding that's gone off track. It's our vision of him that has not grasped reality. Can we as the church of Jesus Christ rediscover him day in, day out, week in, week out as he is revealed in the face of his son, Jesus Christ? And be so captivated by the beauty and reality of him that we are thirsty for more and more of this ultimate reality that one day will swallow us up. What is the one thing you crave most to have? The man or woman who has everything this world can offer minus a sure possession of God as Savior in Jesus Christ is a pauper headed for a chaotic, hellish existence. He who does have God, knowing Christ Jesus the Son, but lacks every material benefit this world can possibly offer, is a rich man, a rich woman, beyond all calculating. My flesh and my heart will fail, but... God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our Father, establish us in this trust. As we are distracted in the way Asaph was by the television commercial, by the political campaign, by the friend who seems to have things we don't have, show us what is real. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who in coming for us and dying for us and rising again, 
opened up reality that we could step in. We praise his name. Keep him before us that we might live in such a faith. Amen.